1: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. This
0: is Here there is not green, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Audra. We're jumping into Colossians chapter 3. And probably listen to that, you're wondering where we're going to go with this, but uh, you know, one of the things that we do here as a church is we preach through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons we preach through whole books of the Bible is there are texts in the Bible you might want to skip, and preaching through a book of the Bible doesn't allow you the wiggle room there. So you get to it and as a preacher, you're like, well, I guess we're doing this today. So uh, welcome to Redemption Church. We're glad you're here. Uh, we've actually spent the last four weeks looking at Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses, and really all of that's been about how do we get the spiritual life that God wants us to have happening in here so that it begins to bubble out to our life and we begin to look more like Christ. And what we're going to look at today is really the external outflow from that internal spiritual growth that happens. So all the stuff we've been talking about that God's doing in here needs to show up outside, and Paul's going to turn and shift things and say, here's the relationship that your faith ought to impact in the way in which you live. Because you realize you were created for relationships, Literally God designs you to connect with other human beings. Uh, in fact in the very beginning part of the scriptures it says it is not good for man to be alone. And when Jesus was asked later what the greatest commandments are, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a relationship with God. The second is like it, he said, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your relationship with everyone around you. That's interesting because everything Jesus says that it's important in life to be summed up with those two commandments. We were designed and created for relationships. If I could just venture a guess that as you think about your own life and your own personal history, that your greatest joys in life have been relationships. Like the, the moments that you look back, the treasures, the memories, and the things that you hold on to and go, man, that was the greatest weekend of my life, are almost always relationships probably the greatest hurt in your life are also relations. Because we are created for love and connection with others. And sometimes we take great risks hoping to find love and sometimes we experience great hurt that causes us to fear connection. Because someone who should have loved us well dropped the ball. And that creates tensions in our life. But we're undeniably relational beings. It's interesting that device that you've got in your pocket and in your phone that I mean or in your your purse that has a screen on it. Uh, that little digital technology, we've even tried to make it relational. we talk talked about social media as though that piece of technology somehow just magically becomes social, but it's because even through our technology, we want to try to connect online with different things. It's why when you were watching football yesterday and you were maybe at the stadium, anyone go to the stadium last night? Someone scores, what do you immediately do? You turn to someone next to you and you're like, you're looking for someone to high five around you because you're relational and you want to celebrate a touchdown with people around you, and you want to enjoy it. That's why when you receive a much-desired gift from a loved one, you almost always give them a hug. That's why when you apply to college and you are trying to get into this dream school or you're trying to get a job and you've been praying for it and you've asked your friends to pray for it, and you've sent your, you know, all your material in and you're waiting for that response, and you finally get the email that says, accepted, you immediately take a picture or a screenshot, text family and friends going, I got in. You want to celebrate that moment with someone around you. It's also why, as you head into holiday season, uh, that we get excited about being with family, or maybe we get fearful about being with family if we have an unhealthy family. But the holidays put this enormous emphasis on being together, and all these all these uh, interactions are indicators of something that God put inside us. We were meant to. We were created meant to with people around us. And we were designed for that. We get to the end of chapter three in Colossians. He's been talking about how God is renewing us. And because we've become Christians, we have new faith and he's birthed new life and made us new creations. And that is beginning to work itself from the inside out in our lives. And it's meant to bubble out into our relational world. So Paul's going to take three key relationships and say, let me show you how all the stuff we've been talking about ought to work itself out in the life of those relationships. in some ways, it's going to be a challenge, because what he's saying is, if you really want to see how mature you are spiritually, look to your relationship, because that'll be the most clear indicator of what's really going on on the inside. So our focus this morning is going to really be on the, the last section, that uh, Colossians 3, kind of eight, or 18 through 25, and then the first verse of chapter 4, um, and you can, and we're going to see uh, really what God has to say there. Here's the thing, to be honest, what, what God says there is pretty simple. Like, it's not really confusing. It's like kids do what you're supposed to. Do. It's kind of where it goes. It's not really complex. It's not really difficult to understand, but it's really hard to live. Isn't it? And the problem is, we look at that. Is if we start there and you miss everything else that happened in Colossians three, then you're you're gonna set yourself up for uh, failure. It's gonna be a problem. I feel like me at all when sometimes you. Think about your marriage. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about our family relationships with our kids. We're going to talk about our workplace. Uh, do you have this reality that 99 out of 100 times, you're not really confused about what you're supposed to do? You just don't want to do it? Uh, can you relate to that? Like, Most of the time, I know I should not say this to my spouse right now, but it's really difficult for me not to do that. Most of the time, I look at my kids and I go, I'm going to guess this is not a helpful reaction right now. But it's everything I can do to kind of pull it back and unwind it before it all just comes out. Um, you do that at work. Something happens, and the coworker snaps at you. Your boss tells you something to do, and you know exactly what you want to say back to them. Hard to manage, them. say the right things. This is what we're going to talk about today. So, uh, friends, let me. We're going to, we're going to lay the groundwork We're going back a little bit, wash the three before we get to that stuff. But let me just say, like we're going to get to wives submit to your husbands. We're going to get the kids, obey your parents. I know that's what some of you are waiting for. Like, what's the preacher man going to say about this? Uh, that's kind of, as soon as you heard those passage read, you were like, all right, let's see where he goes now. Uh, and started dialing that up. Some of you are getting ready to throw some elbows. Ladies, you're like, he said you can't be mean. You know, you're starting to get in that mindset. And, uh, but before we start snickering and throwing throwing bows, uh, let's look at what scriptures say. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to live out as new creations at home and at work what God wants us to be. We need to see our foundation, our motivation, our map, and our power. And so we're going to kind of break it, break it down, and we're going to start off with our foundation. We'll look at our motivation, our map, and our power. Um, to be honest, uh, th- this text, as we get there, we just say that as we think about these verses and think about where we're headed, it's important for us to go back and lay the foundation. Because uh, if you've been around our world at all um, in the last, Number of years, these things have surfaced and bubbled up in all kinds of ways, uh, but really they've been doing this throughout all of human history. And in fact, um, we know that these verses come with so much baggage because they've been confused, they've been misused, that people have abused these texts to make them try to say things that they don't really say. And, and so to understand what, what, what God's saying in those verses at the end, you actually have to go back and make sure you've, you put them in the context of everything God was saying beforehand. In order to understand it, because these verses uh, don't justify abusive patriarchy, they don't defend uh, defend chattel slavery, they don't uh, reinforce any of those ideas. Uh, you will not find those things supported anywhere in this book, and so I just want to say that up front as we get there. But what we do see here is that we need these God given verses, to actually remind us that our faith is meant to be worked out in all of our relational circles in our lives, and so we're going to see why it's so important. But we're also going to set back and just remember that God cares about all of your life. Your faith has a foundation that's built upon the love of God and upon his grace. So let's start there. Let's uh, start off looking at our foundation. You guys realize if you start the Bible and you go back and look at it, Genesis 1 and 2 says God made the world and it was good. It's so redundant. It's almost just monotonous. It was good. It was good. It was good. Then it gets mankind. says it was very good. And so this, we were created to be good in chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 3, this little thing called sin enters the world. And immediately at the end of chapter 3, we see that God says, let me tell you what you guys just created. You created a world, and it says that um, for somehow between the husband-wife relationship on the inside, there's now enmity, that your desire is going to be to master the other party. So there's now conflict that's driven internally through something that got broken because sin entered the world. And so that's chapter 3. And not only that, it goes on and God says uh, that our work is going to be harder. It says your life is going to be now filled with toil. Like things are going to break. Things are not going to work the way they're supposed to. Everything you think is designed to work a certain way is going to be harder because sin has now entered the world and life is going to be more difficult. Think about the first, uh, first sibling relationship in the Bible. What happened? Murder. That's not good. This is how we started. So God started, as like it was very good, and you get just one chapter in, and it's like the whole thing's blown up. And so what I want to start off and say is our foundation is that we are all united under two things. One, we are created in the image of God, good, but we also are broken and in need of God's grace. And the scriptures make that eminently clear. In fact, in verse 11, the uh, one we began with today, I actually skipped it the last three weeks because I wanted to deal with it here, because it deals with our relational world and our relational capital and the way that things work out typically in our in our normal lives and so i wanted to deal with it here because it sets up kind of where we're going throughout the rest of this time in verse 11 it says um that here meaning in the church and god's people here there is not greek or jew circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave free but christ is all and is in all human differences in god's people are brought under the cosmic rule of christ that, that all the things that we make it sin into the world and that enmity that takes place between men and women that creates rivalry between genders that creates uh, racial tensions that creates the, the battles and the battlegrounds of our world where We see it on cnn or fox news all the time we see the, the ramifications of broken relational stuff that happens and what what paul is writing here is that in God's people, these things are being redeemed through the grace of God. And that's what he wants to do in us. There's an assumption that's sort of a theological assumption that's made here. God's grace means that all are equal. There's no ontological created superiority from one person to another, but all people are equal in that they are created in the image of God. Meaning, if you look around this room, look at the person next to you, they bear the fingerprints of God. They literally are the glory bearers of the creator of the universe and you see them sitting all around you. We're all equal in, um, under, under God. We're also all valued. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus gave the infinite sacrifice of his life in order to redeem all kinds of people. So every person around you, every person you interact with is of immense value. We're also all loved. Because Christ is over all and he's in all good news for you and me and it ought to shape everything in which in the way we live this is the foundation that that really all of our christian faith built up Um, andy crouch in his book the life we're looking for uh, speaks a little bit about this and he talks about just the world uh, kind of what a radical message that was in that world that when this gospel this grace this idea of god's love that, that that loves everyone equally how revolutionary it was in that world he says Many people in that world were, in fact, not considered real persons. Uh, slaves had no rights. Slaves were considered to be property in that world. And, in fact, 20% of the population approximately were slaves in that day. And it wasn't chattel slavery like, like harmed the, the history of our country, but it was slavery that they, they had either been taken over in battle, and so they just got incorporated in, or they would accumulated so much debt they could never get out of from under it, and they just had to go work for someone else in order to get out from under the pressure of their debt but they were considered non-citizens. They lacked full status as persons. If they were accused of a crime, they didn't even have evidence. It was like, no, I just said the way it is. And there was no justice in the system. Saw that even uh, wives and children in a family had no personhood on their own. Their personhood was established because of their relationship to the head of the household. And so if you had a, 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 a familia, if you had a, Family that had some kind of wherewithal, they're part of a household. You were considered a true person, but it was only because of your connection to that person. You feel how different this message of the radical love and grace of God would be in a world like that. In fact, that's exactly what we saw. That when the gospel began to break into that world, it began to revolutionize everything, and over the course of time, it changed an awful lot. Crouch goes on to write. He says a social begin- movement was beginning in that world that would, over a few centuries, turned the notion of personhood in the roman world completely upside down even as technological and economic power of the empire continued to grow an unlikely drama was taking stage a small group of people had come to believe against all evidence and social convention that they were in fact full persons and that they had discovered a way of flourishing in life together in a, that those small groups of people began to gather in different houses and different communities and different uh, circles in the Mediterranean world, and they would where they used to recline and drink and dine, waited upon by slaves and entertained by uh, titillated by entertainers. It says these new fledgling groups connected in a, around a different kind of meal, a meal that was celebrated in honor of someone who was not present, but that they were remembered. Called communion, and it was the Lord's table, and in these little pockets of people called churches, they began together around a meal and share common loaf of bread. It's why when we take communion here, we come to a common table, and we all come together because we're all invited into the grace of God, and we all share as equals the same loaf and the same cup, and they began to celebrate in this radical kind of a way, and it honestly began to change the entire way that civilization saw in humanity, it began to alter, of course, history, and this leads us to our motivation, so if that's our foundation is the grace of God, and the love of God. Our motivation is Christ exalted as King and Lord. So if Jesus saved us by grace, he also became not just Savior, but Lord. He became rescuer, but he also became our King. And in his resurrection, he exalted himself and was above everything. And so we look to him as ultimately our motivation. When you think about what is your motivation to love personally? Like, why do you love the person next to you when it's hard? Why do we override our natural tendencies sometimes and say, I'm going to love in a way that seems, uh, seems pretty radical right now because of some reason? Well, culture is not a good reason. It's not a good motivation. In fact, any culture that, that has ever existed has always been bent and broken. And so if we look outside to just the culture around us, whatever variation of that you prefer, that's going to be an insatisf- unsatisfactory motivation that for, for consistent love. In fact, if you think about the way in which your preferences or desires work, and our preferences and our desires fluctuate like the wind. I mean, stick your finger in the air and see how you feel this day. And if that's all you're depending on, if that's the strength that you've got to bring to your love, you're going to fall short over and over. Third thing that is an inadequate motivation is the quality of others' response. Uh, Do you ever have relationships like that that go, and I'm going to love you really well as long as you do everything I want? Like, I'm going to be a really good parent for my kid as long as they don't ever disobey. I'm going to do all the right stuff as long as I get back what I put in. I'm going to put relationships in the bank, but I expect that to come immediately back to me in some kind of payment. Um, So those are transactional relationships, and that's not the kind of love that Scripture points to either. Our motivation is Christ, King of our life. When Jesus becomes center of our world, it actually reorders everything under his leadership. That's what Paul's been saying. In fact, we go back a little bit in chapter 3, what he says we have to put off the old self and learn to put on an entirely new self. We, we have to be renewed in the knowledge of our minds according to God, the way God made us. We have to begin to think differently about who we are and what our, how, what our love should really look like because um, of what God's done for us. In fact, verse 17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So everything that God's producing in us and in our faith and in our spiritual life, spiritual growth, and in our relationship with him, that it's meant to cause us to live for Christ. Because whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What that means is that when you wake up in the morning and you put on your uniform and you're going to go play the game of whatever you've got in your life that day, you wear Jesus across the jersey. So you're, on, you're on team team Christ. You're, he's your Lord. He's the one you represent. And everywhere you go, you do in the name of Christ. and that supposed to influence all of our relationships. So Paul's going to then turn after verse 17, he begins to break it down in terms of our relational world. And he's going to talk about our marriage and our parenting and our workplace. Uh, All of those were a part of, in that Roman world, what they called the household. And the household was uh, this, it was bigger than what we think of. We tend to think of our house as our nuclear family. For them, it was actually bigger. It included other relatives sometimes. It included their servants. And so their household was kind of this bigger thing, but the three primary relationships in the household were marriage, kids, and, and servants. And so Paul was going to start there and talk about how it is they need to operate and live. Now, in that world, the head of the house was almost always male. We do see some places in Scripture. You see in Philippi, uh, when the Philippian church started, uh, there's a lady named Lydia, and she became the, she was the head of a house, and she invited in her house and honestly was a successful businesswoman and used her wealth and the church began to meet in her home, and and so you you see that as an example. There's another one, Chloe in the town called Corinth, a nympha in the Lycus Valley. These are examples in Scripture you see, but almost always in the ancient world, men were the head of the household, and they filled the role of husband and father and master. And the specific example that Paul is going to use um, is important in that world. In fact, this household, in in those days, they talked about household codes. And so if you were to go to any famous philosopher like Aristotle, Aristotle had a household quote code, and he said, this is the way that every house should be run, and this is the way you should operate. You went to the Stoics. They had a certain household um, code of how they're supposed to operate. The Stoics would say uh, that as you, as you look at that, they would order everything under nature. And so they would say, you need to operate or behave within your house according to nature, so the natural realm and the natural way that that things unfold is supposed to dictate how you do. Christianity came along and did something really different. Christianity's household code looked looked entirely different from theirs. They said, your household code is determined by Jesus, that that it's Christ that is the Lord over all, and so he's the one who determines how we're supposed to be. In fact, this phrase is used, the same phrase that the Stoics use, Paul does a turn on it. Instead of being fitting according to nature, he says that it's fitting according to the Lord that our behavior is supposed to be fitting according to what Jesus has done in accordance with who he is. Now, one more significant difference between the household code that Paul talks about here and the ones we saw in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you would not have seen in a Greco-Roman code any kind of exhortation to the head of the house to love their wives or not to break the spirit of their kids or to treat their servants with just fairness because in those household codes, it was almost all aimed at the person that did not have power, telling them what to do. It was meant to foster obedience in people that oftentimes were looked down upon or pressed down. The other thing that happens in this code is not just that it's centered around Christ, but that it actually speaks also to the head of the house. It says, "You too are answerable to God in the way in which you react, and need to offer this. Uh, you need to, to live out of submission to Christ's lordship." Now, if you look at the entire book of Colossians, the word Lord is used 14 times. You know, in these eight verses, eight, over half of the uses of Lord show up in these eight verses. Why? Because what what Paul knew was the only way we're going to do this is if we're living for a different king than ourselves. Because the way in which we live and the way in which our old self has has always lived is, I'm the center and you need to submit and surrender to whatever I want so we become this self, kind of self-focused, self-driven people. But you look at Christ, Christ is self-giving. But Christ is self offered uh, and, and gave himself, self sacrifice to them. So eight times, over half the times, talks about Lord, it meant it's used right here. And so Paul's going to break it down. He's going to give us these three relational pairs, uh, two of them dealing with the home, one dealing with the workplace. And he's going to talk about the, just the differences that ought to show up there. So he's given us, the motivation and um, how we're supposed to live. Let's look at the next thing that Paul wants, which is our or that he tells us which is our map. Um it's interesting that as Paul goes through all eight of these verses and he uses that term Lord over and over reminding us that the only way we're going to do this is if we remember that Christ is the one that gets to call the shots not us. He begins to tell us our map. Look at verse 18. He says as is fitting in the Lord. He's putting a qualifier on the way in which we operate that We're supposed to operate within our homes in a way that's fitting, it's appropriate to our relationship with the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, fearing or honoring or giving reverence to the Lord. The Lord and our relationship to him is the thing that motivates us, but it also provides us the map and tells us where we're supposed to go. In fact, in verse 17, uh, we we saw that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Christ, points us in that direction. Now when you think about what is fitting for the Lord, Paul's been laying that out. you remember where we were the last few weeks? If you go back and look at verses 12 through 17, this is why it's so important for us to understand the context, because if you jump to verses 18 and 19 and what he says to husbands and wives, and you miss out on what he said in 12 and 17, you're going to come with all kinds of wrong assumptions about what God wants. Let's go back and look at verse 12. Notice what he says, that we who are being made new in Christ are Putting off the old self, we need to put on the new self, which is compassionate heart. You know, when Jesus looked out over the city and his world, it says that he looked out and he felt compassion because they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was a compassionate person. So we're to look like Christ. We're to have compassionate heart. Secondly, it says kindness. You always find it fascinating when you read through the gospels, you read about Jesus, that sinners, the people who, who were typified in that society of sinners, wanted to share meals with Jesus. Matthew gets saved, he's a tax collector, he's an outcast, was looked down upon by all the religious types, and Matthew immediately calls all his sinful friends and goes, Hey, come have a meal with this dude I want you to meet. Why? Because they found Jesus immensely kind in the way he interacted. And then humility. Philippians 2 said Christ did not regard his position as God, as something to be clung to, but he emptied himself and became a man, not just any man, but he served, and he gave his life for them. He became even less than a man, but a man who served all, because he was humble, weakness. Think of Jesus on the cross, enduring the taunt, people that threw blurs at him, could have called down fire from heaven, he just took. See, his patient. You know, just dealing with the one disciple, Peter, tells you how patient. Like, get behind me, Satan. You're off. I mean, you know, Peter, you're all off base again. Peter's like, hey, let's do this. He's like, no, don't you have to do zero off. That's not what we're doing here. But, like, you think of all the things he had to endure and all the people. And here's the thing. When Jesus walked the streets of this world, he literally made these people. He created them. They should have worshipped him. And yet he's patient, gave his life, which brings us to the next, bearing with one another, forgiving each other just as the Lord has given you. Friends, if there's anything that unites us that we all needed to forgive, Christ brought it. We're saved by grace, but we don't, none of us have it all together. But we're called to forgive others because Christ forgave us. See the map that we've been given? This is the GPS. This is the the course that we're supposed to follow. Our lives are supposed to follow the model or the example of Christ. We're supposed to to put on who Jesus is and all those characteristics. When it says put on, it's like putting on articles of clothing. So you need to put on humility and compassion and kindness and meekness and and forbearance and and forgiveness, and we put those on. And then it gets down to to love, and it says um, that, that above all these or over all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So approaching this thing, and love is like uh, one guy says, "It's like the overcoat It goes over all the other clothing and puts it up, makes it all make sense, makes your outfit work." Um, we're called to put on love because Christ loved first. You see how how radical this is. Think about our relationship. Like how different would every marriage in our world be if these were the if if we put on love over everything, and we put on the characteristics of Christ and the way in which we interacted with our kids, how different would it shape our home? How different would, it, would our workplace be? This is the map that he calls us to lean into and to follow. So let's break it down. Paul's going to go and he begins to talk about these three different circles. He's going to start with marriage. Um, in that world, um, it's interesting that the household codes in Greco-Roman world almost never told uh, husbands to love their wives. Um, friends, we can't approach the w- marriage the way the world does because it's not going to bring about the flourishing for our homes that we needed. We have to come from a different place. And Paul viewed love as this supreme virtue that needed to be put on that covered everything else. So in verse 19, when Paul says that husbands are lo- to love their wives, He's giving specific instruction that says all the things that Jesus did that he wants to put in and and work into your life, you need to let those overflow into this primary relationship with your spouse, The husbands. Love your wives. Do not harsh with them because Christ would operate that way. Instead, use your role to to serve. Use your role to, to lift up, to guide, to elevate, to celebrate the one that's that's been given to you. It's interesting, he says to wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. um, Submit yourselves. I'm just going to say that out loud. This is something that's a voluntary act. This isn't something that's demanded or requested. This is something that that someone is, uh, that that a wife is able to do, but it says, submit yourself when it says that. What it really means is, work with your spouse instead of against your spouse. That's the idea that it's meant to carry, Is not, some domineering relationship. It just means, hey, whenever you guys are all running after Jesus and you're going this direction and you're trying to work in these things, go with him, don't buck against him. Um, and so work work into the flow of learning how to l- live out this new creation lifestyle under the leadership. If anything, this is a qualifier that says you don't have to, and and am just going to say this out loud once, but for all three of these relationships, there are, abusive and awful ways in which he's abused. And you just need to know that none of that is what, why I'm spending so much time going back to context. Because if you start at verse 18, you might think that it doesn't look like passion, kindness, ability. It starts there, and it overflows into the thing. So what we're talking about is a life that's oriented by the person of Christ, character, and all that we are. It's interesting that John Chrysostom said this about the husband wife relationship. He said, Observe again that Paul exhorted husbands and wives to reciprocity, meaning this goes both ways. From being loved, the wife learns to become loving. From her being submissive, the husband also learns to yield. This is something we do together. This isn't a one sided thing. And I just want to say, in case you think I'm putting on some new, like, oh, this is some new way of looking at this, uh, this Chrysostom was one of the famous preachers in early church, who actually lived in 349 to 407, the way he looked at this text was, this is mutual. This is something we do together, something we're both involved in. And so the ethos and the environment of our homes should be that we look like Christ, that it feels like Christ in our homes. And the list that we went through in verses 12 to 17, that are all bearing under the umbrella of love, that's what the environment of our home life always is like, what should typify us. It's interesting, that phrase, fitting in the Lord, what's fitting? Uh, it could be translated, what is harmonious in the Lord? Have you ever gone to a symphony and you heard a note that was played out of tune? Like you just, everything's going and you've got this great melody and then all of a sudden you hear like, ah. So like every middle school band you've ever heard. Like at some point you look and you go, I think I know what song they're trying to play, but I don't really recognize most of what's happening here. What, what it's talking about when it says that we're supposed to live in a way that's fitting or harmonious to the Lord, it's that we need to, make, we need to play along with the melody that God has woven into. That, that our, we, we should be writing a song. And so um, that, that whatever the conductor is directing, whatever uh, that God has created for the way the world is supposed to work, our lives are supposed to fit into that like melody. Now, maybe you're not a classical music person. Let me just say it this way. Like, if you're a rock person, your, your life should fit in like a guitar solo that drops just into the right place for that song. like whatever musical thing you want to use it's just that's what we're supposed to be. we're supposed to fit into the melody of what God's doing in the world and that's what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to reflect. What would it look like if we learned to live in conversation with God about our relationship? Can you talk to the Lord about your relationship like what if we put this kind of idea into practice and begin praying all day, Lord? Would you help me to play the right note in this situation? That in, in the situation I'm finding myself in, would you, would you just give me the exact right note to play that would honor you? And um, Father, help me respond in, in with a statement right now with the tone of Christ so that what comes out of me sounds like I interact with others. My God, help me to drop a sweet melody here that turns this mess we've made into a song that honors you. Ever need a day like that in your family? You're looking around and you're like, dude, we sound like a middle school choir right now, or a middle school band right now. And we need the Lord to help. Lord, would you help us somehow turn this into something good? Friends, it's true between our relationships with our spouses. it's also true with our kids. Verses 20, 21 say, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become encouraged. It's uh, a general reference to parents, the word used there, so it could apply to both. It probably is aimed at fathers. Um, dads, do you realize the, the power that you have in your house? That when you speak, just just give weight to what happens in the home. Fascinating to me, the phrase that's used here. Father, uh, don't provoke your children lest they become disabled you ever seen a household where someone just they just rode, just criticized, and, and, and harped to the point that kids in the household don't care about trying to say it? Oftentimes where the heart of a rebellious child comes from. Children are invited to choose to obey their parents in this text. But it's very different in that world because children in the household, code that word, were rarely spoken to or invited to obey, they just were told what to do. Here it's interesting that it seems to focus more on the fathers. Fathers, don't be jerks, drive your kids crazy. Nothing is more discouraging to a child than pointing out everything wrong and criticizing them at every turn. Because you can stir up frustration by constantly coming at them. Kids need boundaries. Kids need rules. rules. And the Lord also gives us boundaries and rules, but he shapes our character, and he does it through, through his love, through his grace. And we need to bring all of that there in our relationship with our kids. In fact, Ephesians adds to this, this text and says, raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're meant to encourage them in terms of how they are there to live. So we've talked marriage, we've talked homes, let's go workplace. It's interesting that Paul talks about this because this is a very broken system. Talks about earthly masters, uh, which is a direct contest. Paul's saying, look, I know this is broken up down here in this earthly world. This stuff's not going with you to heaven, but because you live in this broken system in this broken world, let me give you some instruction for how to do this. Um, honor the Lord in the way in which you live. Don't do eye service, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Probably what he's talking about there is an employee who does the right thing when the boss is in the room, but then slacks off as soon as the boss leaves. Uh, he's saying, look, you need to work as unto the Lord. God sees everything. And so it ought to come, your work ought to come from your character and who you are. You ought to be diligent. You ought to be faithful. And not only that, but you're going to actually be rewarded for it. Then he goes to the bosses, to the masters. He says, lead with justice and fairness. Don't be all high and mighty because you also have a master. I'm trying to remind you we're all equals under God. And so we too will answer for our behavior and our work the way in which we offer it's interesting that Paul also talks about inheritance. And in, in the ancient world, slaves had no inheritance. They had no future. They were used as property until they died and they were put in the ground and they moved on or they were shuffled off to someone else. But they had no future. They had no inheritance. And it's fascinating that Paul turns that all around and he says, but as you do, even as a bondservant, you have a future inheritance with the Lord because God sees your work. He's going to give you something that this world never will. And so live as unto the Lord. And he calls he calls the master fair. Josh treatment of them. It's interesting that at the end of this book in Colossians chapter four, he actually speaks about a slave who became a leader in the early church. He says, Onesimus, our faithful brother, faithful and beloved brother. He sent Onesimus to actually deliver this letter. Pretty remarkable. Slaves and masters together in one church family that began to call themselves brothers sisters because of what christ has done the way in which they let me get to the last of the fourth which is our power Friends, instance we talked about all this stuff um any of you feel like you're just killing it like dude my marriage if i could tell you about it like we have the best marriage ever like we've got it always every day we have is like sunshine and roses and it's always good, you look at your kids, you're like, "My kids never disobey, like they are up and to the right, and we're just like everything's going great. you look at your workplace, I see some of you that work together, and you're like, "Oh no, we love it, we all love work every day it's all like we don't that's just not real world, we all need God's grace, but we also need Gods grace to transform and God promises He will give it to us give it to us, and that points us in the direction of his power uh It's interesting that you go back and look at um verse ten it says that we are being renewed, meaning God's doing something in us in the knowledge after the image of the Creator, that He's producing something in us and through his own power. Verse fifteen, we see let peace of Christ rule in your heart. Somehow in the mess of the world peace of Christ can rule and reign in our heart. It can play umpire, it can help God. It's gets to, to tell us how to how to feel. And let me ask you this. Um, when you're in that place where you're tempted to try to control your circumstances, control your relationships, and control all the things that seem to be unraveling about you, what tends to go on in here? Usually not need to come back to Christ, let Christ rule and reign in our heart. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. richly. Let the gospel transform who you are and the way in which you look at the world. Then let that bubble out. What does that look like? Well, it looks like looking at Christ's love, trying to love likewise. It says that above all these put on love, but we love because he first loved us. So we receive the love from Christ before we give it. We have to receive something to have something to give. We look at his character. Let the peace of Christ rule in us so that we put on his character rather than acting out of the old. We look at his cross, we remember the sacrifice of his love, that when, while we were yet enemies, he gave life away for us. And no matter who we interact with, that allows us to be free, to love them in a similar way. We look at his forgiveness, he says, we, as the Lord forgave us, so also you must. We look at his service, he got down hands and knees, and washed the feet of his type. And He says, you go and do likewise. You're not greater than Christ. Serve like Christ. and we look to his resurrection, we are hidden with him in heavenly places. We know the future that comes to us, we will enjoy the reward of all of these. We have to let that be our power. We try it in our own strength, and we're in trouble. It's not going to go well. And yet, the help of Christ can reshape marriage, Relationship, 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 way in which you interact us. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do work in each heart here. If there's anyone here who doesn't know your love and your grace, you meet them where they are right now. You just open the eyes of the heart that they might, they might understand that you love them, that you sent your only son to die for them that they might have a new life, a new creation. At home and at work. Father, help us all to rest, new grace. All to rest, finished work Jesus Christ. And his resurrection power. Find all of that.